0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Story Blender. I'm Stephen James, and this is where great storytellers share the secrets to great storytelling. looking for unique angles and perspectives on the art of storytelling. I love how story intersects with both our thoughts and our emotions. You know, when we connect with a character in a, a story that we read or hear or watch, it kind of draws us deeply in as a person. And my guest today has a unique perspective on how our engagement with stories can actually connect us with our past. Carolyn Korsmeyer is both a novelist and a philosopher. She is especially interested in how the senses and emotions are engaged by works of art. Themes prominent in her three philosophy books, Things in Touch with the Past, Savoring Disgust, The Foul and the Fair and Aesthetics, and Making Sense of Taste, Food, and Philosophy. She's keen to explore the ways that fiction can revive lives from long ago by engaging the reader in the sights, sounds, smells, and tastes of the past. Her first novel, Charlotte's Story, imagines the life that Charlotte Lucas of Pride and Prejudice might have had after her hasty marriage. Little Follies is her latest novel, and it is available now. Carolyn, congrats on your book, and thanks for being here. Thank you very much for having me. Now, how did you get interested in the the intersection between uh, art and philosophy? That's very fascinating, I think.
1: Well, there are probably a couple of routes that led me there. Um, philosophy, of course, as I'm sure you and your listeners know, it's a very broad field. And the area that has interested me most of the for my career is um, aesthetics and philosophy of art, which, again, is quite a broad area to explore, involving perception. Effective responses, that is to say, emotional responses to Mm. things. Um, And, of course, works of art are prime places where one can grasp different perspectives
2: Mm.
1: on a subject, on an event, on a person. And those perspectives are given you from the point of view of a character frequently, which Mm. I think Mm. is a way to expand our understanding of different points of view. That might be one route, my my interest in aesthetics. I also used to teach courses in philosophy and literature. Hmm. And um, one reason for that is that I became quite interested in how ideas are conveyed. Hmm. uh, Because, of course, a philosophical treatise is designed to explore some idea or other. But it's not the only means by which we think and explore and um ruminate on things and uh certain kinds of fiction are good avenues for that as well.
0: Yeah, no, that's interesting. I was just thinking of recently I went to um the uh a modern art museum up in uh, Washington D.C. cuz I was doing research for one of my upcoming books and I was looking at some of these I guess, works of art. And literally there was one painting that was, uh, beige with a line through it. And mm-hmm. I was like, well, what is that supposed to like, how is that supposed to affect me? And I was just like, I, I wasn't super impressed. And then there's like a little plaque that tells you, oh, this is what the um, artist was trying to convey. But I kind of feel like great art shouldn't need a plaque. What's your thought on that? Like, um,
1: oh, mm. yeah. that's that's a very interesting problem that you talk about there. Uh, it's one that especially, um, it, it has lingered, you know, mm. that kind of art, non-representational works of visual art, it's mm. really been with us for quite a long time, well over 100 years. But the question that you're raising, I don't think has gone away, mm. because it still kind of takes you aback when you go into a gallery. Mm-hmm. excuse me, and are, you know, trying to figure out what it is you're looking at. And you're just baffled. Yeah. And one of the reasons for the bafflement is that abstraction all by itself, it might have a kind of uh, visual impact.
2: Mm.
1: Beige isn't likely to have a lot of impact. <laughs> you know, bright red might. Um, but, but one is a little taken aback. What do I do with this? I think titles are part of a work. Mm. And a title can really guide you into that that work. Um, the interpretive comments that come next to a, a, a piece of art hanging on the wall might or might not be helpful.
2: Mm. If
1: it's something that the artist has expressed about this is what I had in mind, um, maybe it helps guide your thoughts. Sometimes it just takes a great deal of exposure to more than one work of that sort
0: or by that artist yeah it's fascinating my daughter said she was there as well and she said kind of the same thing and i was like well what about if it's untitled like literally it's called untitled and she's like well they did that on purpose too i'm like come on man. but with music too untitled. <laughs> i know right um but like as an as a novelist i i don't really expect someone to read my novel and then get to the end. And then I have an addendum saying, oh, by the way, this is what it means. This is what the themes mean. This is what what I was thinking whenever I wrote it, you know, here's what I want you to walk away with. I mean, we don't do that when we write stories. And Mm -hmm. so just the idea that that form of art, you know, needed that interpretive moment. I was like, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't quite super engage with that. Um, But there are other ones that were emotionally evocative, like I would see something, I would be like, okay, I don't know exactly what to feel or what to explain, but that is, uh, it's a powerful image like that. So it's fascinating, I think.
1: Yes. Although if you, sometimes that happens, and then you read the title and you think, oh, my first response was really off base. Here's a great (laughs) example. I don't know where this piece is now, but in one of the New York museums some years ago, I... Um, literally ran across because it's a big piece and it was outside, uh, one of Alexander Calder's big black metal sculptures. Mm. And it was very intriguing and kind of a little bit mysterious, but also quite inviting. Mm. And I walked towards the center of it because it, it, the sections of it would surround the viewer. I walked towards the center of it because that's where the title was mm. and it was a nasty little joke the title oh. of the piece was black widow spider and you only oh, discover gosh, this yeah, when yeah. you're right there caught in the <laughs> <laughs> caught in the web
0: <laughs> no it's yeah it's pretty interesting um just this idea of art and communication story and all of that makes me think of this uh story that i heard years ago about a dancer who danced this incredible uh program and afterwards this gentleman went over to her and he said man that that was so powerful your dance um, it really moved me. And he said, can I just ask you one question? What did it mean? Mm-hmm. And the dancer said, if I could tell you what it meant, I wouldn't have had to dance it.
1: Oh, that's interesting.
0: Yeah. And I always like that. Like, I feel like story is kind of the same. If I could tell you just what this story is about, you don't need to read it. It's just like, here's my theme statement or whatever it is. But, but to invite someone into a story and uh, really... That a story is more than just like one little theme statement. It's deeper, and it's actually can shrink the meaning if we say, "Oh, this is a story about friendship." Then everyone's like, "Oh, well, I actually thought it was about, you know, greed and and all of these other kind of things as well." But I guess it's not, and it kind of narrows the meaning down to me.
1: Right. Extended writing, as it with a story, especially a really long story like a novel,
2: Uh
1: um, it. It's a very complex world you enter. Yeah. So things that flatten out with a a theme name, like friendship, that's a little little bit, it's more than abstract, it's a little dull, but you get into a story about it and you see the complexities of relationships, that's what brings it alive and makes it much more interesting and something worth pondering.
0: I was thinking of a quote by Flannery O'Connor in her book, Mystery and Manners, where Okay, I might get a word or two wrong because I'm doing this from memory. But she said, a story is a way to say something that can't be said any other way. And it takes every word in the story to say what the meaning is. If you Mm -hmm. can state the theme of a story, you can be certain it's not a very good one.
1: Uh, Certainly if the theme is supposed to be (laughs) (laughs) complete.
0: So I always thought that was really fascinating because like when I grew up with English class, they're all about what's the theme, what's the theme, what's the theme. And Flannery O'Connor is saying, look, to know a story, you have to read the story. You can't just like right. separate it from one, one little sort of th- thematic statement or something like that. always like that. Sure. Yeah.
1: Even more so poetry.
0: Oh, yeah. Poetry. Yeah.
1: Where where the individual syllables really do make a difference.
0: Yeah. And have you studied much on that, on, on the uh, construction of po- poetry and so on?
1: No, no, I haven't. I did sometimes, I mentioned teaching philosophy and literature. Every now and then I would try and include a poem. Uh, I don't think I was very good at trying to teach that material, but I also discovered that my students weren't very good at reading hmm. poems because they didn't notice sometimes there were actual sentences in the poems. Um, in other words, that there was a complete thought uh, that I think they just went line by line. So that's that's a real challenge. I think I just backed away from it, to tell you the truth, because (laughs) I didn't feel I was awfully good at it.
0: I read a lot of poetry, actually, just because I like the economy of words and it helps me as a novelist to try and choose the uh, probably the best word, let's say, for for something instead of just throwing anything in there. Also love to read philosophy because it makes me ask big questions. So I find myself going on both ends. And people say, "What do you like to read? Do you like to read thrillers? Do you write thrillers?" I'm like, "Actually, I like philosophy and poetry." And they're like, "What?" But I like thrillers too, of course. But but uh, but I love stories that ask big questions. Um, now, in your uh, in your stories, do you tend to do that to ask sort of big, sort of philo- philosophical questions or? Um, is that not uh, kind of a central part of the novels you write?
1: To tell you the truth, I've been trying to figure that out.
0: <laughs>
1: the is that I never, I didn't, I, I wrote a lot of philosophy before I completed a novel. Yeah, I, I think like many people who like to write, I have written um, for years, and they were usually snippets of one thing or another. I tossed them away or lost track. Um, but it was it's only when I actually completed a couple of novels that um people would say to me, well, what's the connection with all the philosophy work you did? <laughs> uh, is there is there and they would see philosophical ideas that I hadn't noticed. They kind of leaked in there, you know, without my <laughs> intending them. Um, so uh I think it's maybe a question of what are your main interests in the way you would like to approach things that happen? Hmm. And if there's a philosophical issue, like an ethical question, those are yeah. the ones that frequently come up. Is this a right or a wrong or a potentially dangerous morally thing to do? That enters into the story because it's uh, kind of in your background screen. Hmm. But I, I have never set out to write a philosophical novel. Yeah. Um, uh, there are some of those, and some of them are quite good, but i that's not the route I took.
0: I think there are different, you know, um, certainly different ways to approach a story, and and some people do start with a theme or something they're trying to get across with people, and others explore a question, others a moral dilemma. Um, when you were looking at the the novels that you've written, what was kind of the impetus to get you moving into the direction of shaping a shaping that story? Was it one of those types of areas, or was it just in being intrigued by this character particularly?
1: Well, let's see. I've now completed three novels, and I'm working on a fourth. And I would say the entry to those stories, each story was different. Yeah. um you mentioned my first published novel. Charlotte's story, that actually was kind of an experiment because there have been a number of people who have written elaborations of Jane Austen stories, particularly Pride and Prejudice, something I didn't realize, by the way, when I started Charlotte's story, but Mm -hmm. then I discovered I was joining a rather large company. But ever since I read Pride and Prejudice for the first time, as with many people in high school, I was a little resentful on Charlotte Lucas's behalf because it seemed to me she was treated rather summarily hmm. and that she probably had a lot more to say, if you could imagine a fictional character living behind the pages. And so several years ago, I began a first-person narrative in her voice, hmm. but following a number of the um episodes in the original novel, Pride and Prejudice, and I just really had so much fun with it and elaborated the relationship that she had with her very unlovely husband, William Collins, and I had to make him a more interesting character for that to be pursued. But let me say something about the novel that just came out, Little Follies, the one that um, I think was prompted your invitation to me today um first of all let me say that that novel took me many many years to write Mm, it was not the first one i finished it was the first one i started and finished but i started it in 2004 when i was living in the place where it is set krakow poland Mm. and it's such a have you ever been there
0: no, I've not. I've been to a few places in uh in Europe and in in um the area, but I've never no, I've never been there.
1: Well, it's a beautiful city. And in two, I I've been there five times. It, it was oh, in I... 2004 that I was there for an extended period of time. Um and um It's a rather mysterious city. It's full of antiquities, old streets that lead in crooked directions, um, fascinating, complicated history, very complicated history. And it just seemed ready-made for a mystery setting. And I went there. I was with my husband. We were both teaching a course at the old university there, the Jagellonian University. And I was also doing some research, but I ran out of my research materials. (laughs) <laughs> and, well, what am I going to do? Because the libraries, are, I I didn't have access to the other materials I needed for my current philosophy project, so I started writing the story, and it grew and it grew and it grew grew grew, <laughs> and it um it was a kind of exploration of characters who were coming to Krakow for the first time. And not quite knowing where they were or what they were doing, and making that discovery.
0: Yeah, no, that's um, that's interesting. I always feel like it is important to let setting be a strong uh, influence in stories. So that um, that if you can just sort of uh, take a story and pick it up and plop it in another city, it's maybe not integral enough to that to that setting. And Mm -hmm. I always love personally getting on the ground there as well. I'm, you know, looking around like what you just said, all all of those impressions um, impacted you and really found their way, I'm sure, into the story itself. And
1: I did, a lot of the places. And then when I would go back in future visits, I'd go back to the place and check on the details because (laughs) memory is imperfect.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. No, that's that's good. And getting those uh, details right now, we... Uh, when i was introducing you i was talking a little bit about this idea of the senses and philosophy and so on like that do you feel like when people read fiction that it's important to really appeal to the senses sense of sight and sound and taste and so on in descriptions or does that do we sort of fill that in naturally whenever we read you know a story about a specific place
1: i think it's probably a combination of the two i like to include them myself i like to make it part of the description in a, star, a story because i think it there are additional cues to the reader that bring a place alive or bring a person alive people yeah. have smells too and sometimes they're pleasant and sometimes they aren't and it dep- it also for example the sense of smell um in in little follies there oh i don't know how much of the story i should give away but i'll say this in little in little follies there is a uh, there are a couple of murders and what with one of them the man who is assigned to kill a woman and really doesn't want to do it but he feels trapped by the situation that he must as he gets close to her he can smell her he can it's a damp dark foggy night he can smell the wool of her coat and he can smell her hair and as I was writing that scene um adding that sensuous detail I thought made it quite vivid and the same could be said of any of the senses or for that matter the sorts of emotions that tend to echo around certain kinds of sense experiences.
0: Um, Yeah, no, that's, that's interesting. I wanted to ask you a little bit about this idea of emotion and story. So this, this is what I was thinking of, like people pay money to go to a theater or to buy a book in order to experience emotions that they avoid in real life, fear, dread, despair, anything like this so and then they also will cry when we read a book or maybe engage with a story a movie or something even though we don't necessarily do that when we interact with tragedies in our own daily lives so why would we do that why would we pay to experience what we avoid and why would we cry over what's not real and not over what is
1: you've just asked two of the central questions in philosophy (laughs) of art I'll give you some very quick remarks. I can't call them answers. Okay. Because those remain very perplexing issues. The thing about, you know, why do we have strong emotions to things that we know are not true?
2: Hmm.
1: Shorthand, that's called the paradox of fiction. Hmm. um because if you if you certain people who analyze emotions, this is just one train of thought or one way to analyze emotions is to say, An emotion is an effective response that includes a belief about something that's happened. But of course, with a fiction, you don't believe it in the sense that this is really happening, and yet you are responding emotionally, maybe quite strongly, as you say, with tears. Um, I think what that shows is that we have emotions even without that belief, or what you would call existential belief, something that is really happening. Imagination is such a fluid and rich and um, flexible facility. Mm -hmm. We can make a world come alive in our minds. And when we read a good story, there it is. Now, the other thing, why do we deliberately become horrified and so forth? That was (laughs) a subject, that one's known as the paradox of tragedy. And um, I think maybe the first person to talk about it was Aristotle, but I won't go back that far. That was a subject that I, dealt with in one of the books you mentioned savoring disgust Hmm. the foul and the fair aesthetics, because one of the emotions that is really the most disturbing and nasty that we tend to avoid is disgust Hmm. you know you're not going to go sniffing through your garbage pail for fun Uh, so what is the power of works of art that do arouse disgust, because a lot of them do. Mm. Think of horror fiction mm. and the incredible graphic visual displays that you see on movies, television, certain kinds of visual art, or for that matter, described in mm. fiction. Uh, the noir fiction is excels in that. Why do we find that interesting? I think there are a variety of answers. One of them is sheer curiosity. Mm. The other, I think, is testing your own limits, How far can I let myself descend into this world before I just can't stand it anymore? (laughs) But I think that as with tragedy, there's something that can be learned from confronting disgust Mm. that is a little more profound than what I just said. It's not just morbid curiosity because often things that, are really disgusting. They often involve mortality, Mm -hmm. death, decay. Mm -hmm. And that is, that confronts all of us Mm -hmm. with illness, with, you know, eventual demise. And so I think there is a shadow, if you will, of wanting to approach the really unthinkable when we indulge with disgust and horror and fear.
0: Well, let's pivot away from disgust, <laughs> beauty, and um, so. My question with beauty is: is there a way to prove that beauty exists?
1: To prove it, I wish yeah. I I I could retire on that question. <laughs> <laughs> um, it depends on how you want to analyze beauty. Oh, uh-huh. and this is a question that hasn't been settled in Western philosophy for over 2000 years. Is it an quote unquote objective quality? That is to say, is it really out there in the world uh-huh. or is it a response? Is it like a kind of pleasure? Hmm. And you've got strong philosophical um, traditions that argue both sides or something in between, that it's a kind of interactional response. Hmm. Beauty is, um, I'm inclined to occupy that middle ground, yeah. but I think it also somewhat depends on the kind co- the object of beauty. Because so many things can be called beautiful, and they don't seem to share a common obvious property. Mm. A flower can be beautiful, so can a line of poetry. What does a flower share with a line of poetry? Mm. Well, they both make you feel a certain way. So that maybe is the common thread. To me, that's only a an, an entry to the question: Why do they share yeah, that yeah. common effect? Um, and then there are grades of of things that might be beautiful. There's the cute and the pretty, and then there is yeah. the profound and the difficult and the tragic that is still beautiful. Huh. I'm not answering your question because Oh, no,
0: it's very yeah. interesting. I think you know, and and um, it was a question that I had to tackle with a. Book I wrote a few years ago uh called Synapse, which dealt with um basically a robot that was self-aware. And so oh, nice. um he was trying to figure out if something was beautiful or not. And uh so from his perspective, I was trying to figure out, well, it does beauty exist, and how do you know it? And how do you know if this is beautiful? And it's all very fascinating to try and look through the eyes of a robot uh oh, to do that, but also just you know, to explore on my own what what kind of what that has to do with. And, and related to story, are there, do you think, universal kind of aesthetics that draw people of different cultures, you know, around the world to stories? Um, so we were just touching on this idea of subjective or, or objective beauty. What about in stories? Are there certain kind of sort of universal objective? True, I don't know about truths, but anyway, aspects of story that you've found that appeal to people, different backgrounds and cultures, and so on.
1: I think there must be, um, within, of course, um, allowing for different cultural styles Mm -hmm. and different periods of taste, but I think there must be, or we wouldn't bother translating from other cultures. And there's, you know, that's one of the things that's a little frustrating about poetry, is the fact that if you don't know a language, you have to rely on a translation, which is in a way just a different work. A storyline is a little more um, amenable to being moved linguistically. But I've recently been reading um, Japanese folk tales. They're not familiar to me. I'm more familiar with Grimm or that sort of thing, but they're, they're quite interesting. And um, certainly, novels from across the globe, um, tales, legends, and then there are common themes, themes Mm. of self-sacrifice or romance. And what counts as romance in one culture is not necessarily the same as another, but still there's that kind of tug of yearning and wanting something that maybe you reach and maybe you don't. So I think there are some commonalities at least universal is maybe a little strong but but we are made the same way all of us with certain tendencies to fail and succeed and love and hate and be aggrieved and yes so I, I think the answer to the question is yes
0: yeah I do I think so from what I've read of different stories from around the world. And just as I've traveled and listened to people's stories, we we tend to have very common things like you just mentioned, you know, um, grief or love or, you know, the desire for freedom or for mm-hmm. happiness, for peace or for meaning or, you know, for uh, transcendence or whatever it is, all of these kind of things. It's not like just one culture has all of those <laughs> quests or something, but they are you know throughout the world and i think that's I love how you brought it out you know like just to say well that's why we translate stories from one to another i'm like yeah well that totally makes sense that's good
1: yes and you know if you read a story from a culture that's very different from your own yeah um maybe an older tale of of feudal times Hmm. and you think well why is anybody putting up with this lord and master but you read enough of it and you become attuned To values of loyalty and fealty that are less common now, but I think it expands your own emotional register and your own capacities for sympathy.
0: Does that emotional engagement that we have in stories and expanding that, does that actually help us? One of the thoughts that you had explored some was the idea that that stories can help us to re-experience kind of past moments and How do do emotions and stories bridge us to who we were and to who we currently are?
1: Hmm. Well, sometimes I think you can read a passage that really echoes Hmm. with something from your own past, and it could be something that bothered you Hmm. or that more than bother you, that almost tortured you for a while that you didn't quite understand. That kind of thing can make you feel very alone. Mm. um undergoing a, 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 an awful illness, for example, can make you feel very lonely. I'm I mean, you you know you're not the only person in the world, but you feel terribly isolated. And I think when you come upon a story that captures that moment, it illuminates it
2: mm.
1: for you because it's put in somebody else's words. You didn't have to come up with it yourself, but you recognize it, you know? Yeah. Um, I think some of the emotional arousal from stories is recognition,
2: hmm.
1: not all of it. Some of it is when you're terribly surprised, this is yeah. fresh and new. It's, there's a lot of scope there for different kinds of emotional responses. But sometimes I think you say, yes, that's right. That's the way it was. And now I get it better.
0: Something I've really, really been interested in the last few years is this the idea of honesty within uh, fiction. So, in mm-hmm. other words, not that it's honest to what actually occurred, but that it's honest about life, about human nature, about our experiences, and so on. So, that I'll be reading someone's work, uh, maybe to critique it or something, and I'll say, "That moment, that is honest." Mm-hmm. And I'll so, say, "Well, what about the rest of my chapter?" I was like, oh, "Well, that moment is is honest," and so. Like in my writing, I've really tried to do that. Just is this honest, uh-huh.
2: and
0: or is it contrived? And if it's contrived, uh, and I want to change it so that it, it resonates, so that it feels like it's an honest um, experience yes. we have. Yeah,
1: yes, I, I I agree, and I think that that's a way of differentiating your characters when you're writing too, because a genuine response to one character might be completely foreign to another, but if character is fully developed it makes sense or it sounds i'm trying not to repeat your term honest but i know what you mean yeah it's like a genuine um personality there
0: now in your latest book little follies um it's a it has mystery aspects as you mentioned when you were going through these streets and you were thinking of it where uh for you where did you engage with the sort of the mystery or intrigue of it in other words did you begin by knowing the answer of who'd done it or who did it, or was that something you discovered as you were working on this uh, and the story? Both. <laughs>
1: Actually, one of the first things I wrote was the last page of the novel. I should say the last page is probably the only thing that remained the same throughout the 18 <laughs> years or so between first words and contract. But um I, I don't know. I just sort of saw the end because these people were leaving uh, Krakow at the end of the story. But um, I did want to make it a mystery that fit the region. And this led me to make one of the um, crimes in the story a theft. I invented a museum, a, a complicated historical slash art museum. that And that's completely fictional I made it up but I also thought I made up a painting to go into it uh-huh. uh, let me give you a little background here because it's it's a story that nearly nearly did me in I, I almost had to abandon the whole novel but um I wanted to I won't give it go into too much of the background because it's kind of complicated but um I wanted there to be a theft from this museum of a recently authenticated painting by Leonardo da Vinci. Okay. okay. And part of that inspiration was one of the famous paintings of Krakow as Leonardo's Lady with an Ermine, hmm. which itself when it was um authenticated some years ago, it has a provenance that's a little interrupted, anything that old usually does. People were doubtful it really was by Leonardo, but then it was authenticated and it is a just a beautiful painting. And um uh And so I wanted I I modeled my fictional painting kind of on that one. But Mm -hmm. some years ago, and I wish I could remember just when it was buried here in my study. There are newspaper Mm -hmm. clippings, but I I can't find them. There was a picture that was exhibited across the United States, and it happened to come to Buffalo, where I live. I went to see it. And the question is, is this Leonardo da Vinci? Mm -hmm. And the subject of the painting is Salvatore Mundi it's a motif of a lot of renaissance art salvator mundi means savior of the world and it's a frontal view of christ with holding a globe not a not a globe like a map but an orb in one hand and raising his hand in blessing with the other and this picture that was doing the rounds in the united states was that was a salvator mundi was it by Leonardo? There was controversy. One book said yes. I think most people said no. But I used that as the model for my fictional picture in Little Follies. Yeah. And a lot of the story was round up with this savior of the world. Well, you might remember in 2017, a real Salvador Mundi was authenticated as the work of Leonardo da Vinci. Aha. Uh-huh sold at Christie's for $450 million. What?
2: Yeah.
1: And exactly. I thought, how could that happen? <laughs> what has happened to my story? Um, it's a fascinating uh, story about the the one that might or may not be real. Yes. There's actually been a whole book written about it by Ben Lewis called The Last Leonardo, which is a really terrific book. But when I discovered that... Um, my fictional picture had a real world world counterpart, I thought, well, what am I going to do? My mystery has fallen to bits. Have I lost the plot? I thought about changing the plot. I didn't want to because it was kind of bound up with one of the um, thieves. Um, do I publish it this way and just hope nobody noticed $450 million being spent
2: <laughs> on another
1: picture? I, or I thought, do I abandon the book? And in the end, I just confessed in the preface Uh that as it happened, there was this coincidence. Um, And I think I got away with it. I hope so.
2: No, (laughs) It was
1: was a moment where where (laughs) life and art kind of collided. And that was a surprise. So your question, did I intend for all of these things to happen in the the story? Mm. Yes. But then I had to adjust for what was happening in Krakow Hmm. And what was happening in the art world.
0: Yeah.
2: And
1: my characters had to do a little backpedaling.
0: This whole idea of authenticating art is kind of interesting to me, too. It's sort of a rabbit trail. But, you know, if uh, if a piece of artwork like that one is authenticated, whoever authenticates says, yes, that is $450 million. But what if they said, no, it's actually not? It would be uh-huh. worth Thousands, maybe, or something like that,
1: or maybe nothing,
0: (laughs) or perhaps nothing. It's like what? It's it's not based on the quality; it's just based on the pedigree. Like where did it come from? Yeah, Yeah.
1: right. Oh, the prices in the art world have become just extraordinary.
0: It's crazy. (laughs) It's interesting. So, is there anything more you want to tell us about your new book? It sounds pretty interesting and intriguing.
1: Um. Well, I've told you there's a murder, there's a theft, there's a few more. (laughs) Um, I think the only thing I would say is, uh, of course, I hope people buy it and read it. But one of the things that I really, really enjoyed with this book, which gets back a little bit to something you said earlier, I just became so fond of the characters, even the bad guys. I didn't (laughs) like all of them, but I was so interested in them. And some of the main characters... I um I just became very fond of it, almost as though they were real people which sounds a little bit a little bit insane but I wanted them to have an interesting ending even if it wasn't always super happy I wanted it to be intriguing yeah one yeah. of the things that I need when I read I need to like a character yeah. They don't have to be super good characters, but they need to be drawn so that they're real and I care about them. Yeah, And that's what I tried to do.
0: No, that's great, because I feel like it's so vital that people are intrigued that they want to spend time with a character. So I think what you just said, you know, maybe not everything about them is attractive or whatever, however you phrase it. But so they might, not, they're not perfect, of course, but there's something about them. They're drawn in such a way where it's like, I just want to spend time with this cat. I want to get to see them interact with others and, and follow their journey. And sometimes it is the villains that intrigue us the most, I think. And so yes. I think that's okay. I, it's just like, so sometimes when people ask me about, you know, creating characters, I'll just ask them, is this a person that people will want to spend 10 hours alone with? And if it's not, then maybe you know why what are you asking the people to sit and read your book if you're not if they're not gonna want to do it. So like you've got to shape that character so that you know it's someone we they're irresistible, we can't turn away from them.
1: I I agree. Yeah. I agree. I try for that.
0: Yeah, no, that's fantastic. And congrats on the book. And um, so before we close up here in the next couple of minutes, I usually have started to ask. Um, authors like what is the one novel um, besides yours that everyone should read um, before they die and and that would be fantastic to hear from you. But I also have to ask what is one book of philosophy that everyone should read before they die? So that's interesting. So anyway, if you have a novel suggestion that would be great, but I just thought I'd throw the philosophy book question at you too.
1: Well. I expected the question about the novel. I didn't expect the question about the philosopher. So <laughs> keep on that one for a moment. Sure. Um, uh, there are so many wonderful novels that have been written. It's so hard to choose one. I'd like to suggest two, if I could. Sure, yeah. Um, I personally like big, thick, long novels that take forever to finish. Yeah. They capture you, you live within them for a while. And there are two uh older 19th century novels that I really love and have reread many times. They're quite different. One of them is George Eliot's Middlemarch, which I um, like for the characters. There are certainly moral dilemmas they all go through. But one of the things I absolutely love about it, this novel of hers in particular, it's, it's my favorite of hers. But this one, very, very long, involved, sober text. And all of a sudden, there will be something hilariously funny that she sure. says. Just this wit comes through. And I love it because life itself is kind of sober, mm. but it isn't only that. And if you mingle the humor with the deeper insights, they they become, to me, so appealing. Mm. Yeah. So that one I would recommend, Middlemarch. The other one is really very different. It's Moby Dick, um, which I know many people find an awful bore, (laughs) enough about whales, enough about the humpback or what have you. And I like it for two very, well, maybe maybe it's actually similar reasons to what I just said with Middlemarch. It actually is kind of a terrifying novel Hmm. because it is about the horror of eating.
2: Hmm.
1: Everybody, everything, every living thing eats and there's this devouring theme that goes through all of it but there is a fabulous chapter in the middle of it where these whalers go out in their small boats intending to harpoon themselves a whale and they come upon a whale a whale nursery where there are mothers and newborn whales and the mood just lifts and they put away their harpoons and they reach out and they touch the baby whales. It's just just a splendidly beautiful scene. And then of course they go back and they go back to whaling. But it's this interruption of this drive to conquer nature, which of course ends in horror itself. It's, It's an interruption of that with this moment of peace. It's like the peaceable kingdom coming to be. And it's such a complicated novel That I would also recommend it for the those complexities.
0: Interesting. Yeah. I have a friend who read you know Moby Dick. He loved it. And I was like, I just don't know if it would be for me, but he's like, no, seriously, you've got to read it. So now I've got two people who tell me that it's definitely worth tackling. So that's interesting.
1: I'll venture a philosophy book. It's not a very original suggestion. Um a lot of philosophy is very, very interesting in terms of the ideas, yeah. but really kind of tedious to read, if I dare say so. <laughs> um, but if you go back to Plato, hmm. it's very readable. Hmm. It's beautiful prose in almost any translation that I've seen. Yeah. So I'd recommend those. Now, there's a lot of them.
0: <laughs> yeah, go back and read some dialogues, huh? Maybe or Bye. the public or something. So yes. Well, yeah, no, that's fantastic. So um and finally, just um if you could speak through time back to yourself, maybe when you're say a teenager, do you have any words of advice that you would that you would give to yourself or one anything that you wish you could tell your younger self? What what would that be?
1: Hmm. My younger self wasn't terribly good at taking advice. <laughs> <laughs> I think though that I would say. And I hope the younger self would listen to be a little bolder, take mm-hmm. more risks. Don't take this. Don't take the obvious path.
0: Interesting. Yeah. Nice, I nice. don't know if
1: I could have when I was a yeah. teenager or a, a younger woman, but that might be my advice. Nice. But then the other, the minute I say that, I think, Oh, wait a minute. Don't be too risky. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Paradox. Yeah. <laughs> <Right? laughs> We all desire adventure and security both.
1: What? Isn't How does that a great dilemma? That's right. Yeah. That's right.
0: Well, uh so thanks so much for your time and for, you know, for the interesting conversation about the intersection of story and fiction and art and aesthetics and philosophy and it was very fascinating. I really enjoyed it.
1: Oh, well, thank you so much for having me.
0: Yeah, now um, before we close up, do you have any uh words of encouragement out uh for other authors maybe i know one thing you mentioned your book your latest book you worked on for many years and so i know some people out there maybe have a story they've started working on or maybe put aside um and i think it could be a moment of encouragement just to know that you you know went back to it and really worked on this book for so long before it ever found its way into print um what do, what do you, what would you say about that journey of perseverance that you had to take?
1: Actually, I would I would recommend just what you said. Hmm. Um, not if it's torture, but I had so much fun writing this that I didn't want to give it up.
2: Hmm.
1: But um, yeah, that it it certainly took a very long time for me to to write from start to finish.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, I I hope the next one I'm working on right now won't take quite that long. But <laughs> the other thing. As you go back, it's very important to not, not be wedded to every single word you've written down. My first draft was 50,000 words over a limit of, of what a new novelist should ever submit. <laughs> I had to cut out enormous amounts, but I think it improved. Hmm. I think, In fact, I, I think that when I write philosophy as well. Often when you write a philosophical essay, you're then told, okay, it's a thousand words too long. Make it shorter. (laughs) Oh, wait a minute. I just finished it. But it's usually better if you get rid of the flab. Hmm. And so, yes, if you really love the story and are having so much fun, keep writing it or at least keep revising it.
0: There you go. Well, Carolyn, thanks so much um, again. And um, I wish you all the best with your story, with your with your writings and your novels. Um, is there a place online where you'd like to direct people maybe to find out more about your books or about, um, I don't know if you ever do signings or anything along those lines?
1: The best the best place to reach me is my personal website, which is carolyncorsmeyer.com Shall I spell that? C-A-R-O-L-Y-N-K-O-R-S-M-E-Y-E-R.com. Um, I try and keep that up to date with everything kind of information that is is relevant i think
0: fantastic and thank you to all of you who are listening uh for more information about our guests and to check out our other interviews you can always search for us wherever you listen to your podcasts or click to the storyblender.com and don't forget to like us and subscribe to receive our weekly podcasts tell your stories well my friends and always remember the art of the story is all in the blend Take care, everyone. We'll see you next time.